Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about the Canadian coming-of-age creature feature, Ginger Snaps. First, my co-host and comic book writer, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? I am howling for this movie. (laughs) I'm not going to do the sound effects. God bless you. Next up, my frequent collaborator, comics artist, and certified vampire aficionado, Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? Emily treading where I dare not go. I mean, it's California. You can't, there's, there's no rules against making sound effects on a podcast there. Uh, <laughs> are there rules against it elsewhere? No, I, mean, I just feel here. like if I start making wolf sounds, I'm going to get real into it. And that's just like a Pandora's box I don't want to open. <laughs> At least not this early into the podcast. <laughs> and our special guest tonight, editor, writer, and one half of the podcast, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. It's Jay Edidin. Jay, how are you tonight? I am okay. I am. I, I feel like I, that's that's such a weird question right now because it, <laughs> it it's always got the qualifier, you know, heavily heavily modified for the pandemic. I'm good. I mean, the question we're all invested in: How are the chickens? The chickens are extremely annoyed because there's about two and a half feet of snow here, mm. and first of all, they think it's my fault. Which okay, fair. Um, and second, they will not walk in the snow, which means that they're stuck in their coop, basically. So they are, they're very annoyed about the weather, but they are healthy and they are otherwise pretty happy. So yeah, they, they can, they'll, they'll get through this and spring will come eventually. It sounds like they're doing about as well as any of us. They are. I, I, took, I took Guildenstern around the yard for a walk the other day. Um, so she, she enjoyed that and up to the house to visit tea. Gild, the, the, Guildenstern is, is one of the two chickens who are Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, so named because they are inseparable and basically indistinguishable unless you are very, very familiar with them. Those are great names for chickens. I wish I could take credit. That one was Alti. Tell T they are great names for chickens. I shall. They're great names for chickens, and I would assume in a handful of years there'll be even better names for ex chickens. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how long how long chickens tend to live. Um, I, I I know that these are these are there for you know egg laying and hanging out, so they're they're not you know going to have their lives cut short by potential meals. I mean, barring you know post apocalyptic conditions. Yeah. But if we're not there already, I think they're okay. I mean, it's the only names for your pets in which it may be fun to tell people that they have died. Fair, fair. You, you can also just sort of twist on that. So have things like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern take a dust. Are gay. Or are gay. I don't know. I mean, they're both female chickens, but they're also siblings and they, they don't really engage in any, any mating behaviors with each other and there aren't any other chickens around. So well, we, don't, we don't really have a frame of reference there. Confusing queerness with incest. Welcome to Ginger Snaps. Yes. That is a good <laughs> segue. Thank you for seeing that up for me. <laughs> Anytime. Well, uh, a little bit about the movie before we start. If anybody hasn't seen it, it is directed by John Fassett. I just have Orphan Black in parentheses here. It is uh, written by Karen Walton, who I think is actually who the Orphan Black thing is meant for here. Um, A lot of the people involved with Ginger Snaps went on to create or be heavily involved in Orphan Black. 
and uh, she also did uh, she also wrote for Queer as Folk. I think it's just like it's successful in Canadian, so they end up getting on other Canadian projects. Successful in Canadian is going to be the title of this episode. <laughs> it's 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 like the beverage clearly Canadian, but you know less ill fated. <laughs> because it's successful by definition. Right. Yes. Right. Jay, you had had on here that uh, one of the characters from Orphan Black, Allison, lives in uh, lives in Bailey Downs. Yeah, and um, actually, one of Tatiana Maslany's first roles was as one of the leads in Ginger Snaps too. Yeah, which I still haven't seen because it seems to be impossible to find online right now for Tubi. some reason. Tubi okay. is where the weird stuff is. I don't know how that. I don't know how Tubi happened, but it is full of weird stuff. I don't know. It's but also they on Shutter. They have the entire Bill Plimpton collection. And all of the Ginger Snaps movies and break into Electric Boogaloo and whoever <laughs> responsible for their cataloging knows exactly what they are doing in like, <laughs> the best and most subversive ways. And it's, it's, it's become my go-to platform when I don't know what, what I want to watch. Like there are going to be commercials, but what's around the commercials is going to be so much more interesting than what I can find anywhere else. As far as the stars, it stars uh, Emily Perkins, who uh, is on, was on Supernatural for a while. And uh, Catherine Isabel, who was recently in American Mary, as far as horror stuff goes, has been in a lot of horror stuff and uh, also had a recurring role on Hannibal as well. Yeah. Oh, my God. Catherine Isabel as Margot Verger, as this movie makes clear, is a role she was preparing for her entire life. Oh, yeah. I just got that. Like, just <laughs> now. <laughs> I was like, I looked at the notes and I'm like, Hannibal. Oh, oh. Not having known that when I was like rewatching the movie, I have in my notes, Ginger is a Hannibal villain waiting to happen. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty much face blind. And one of the things that I love about watching TV and movies is that I'm way more likely to recognize people if it's someone who is lit in the exact same way as they were the last time I saw them and making a, the same facial expression, which you're much more likely to get with actors playing roles than like anyone else. <laughs> and I remember watching through Hannibal the first time and just being like, holy shit, that's Ginger. She does make all the same faces in this yes. movie as she does as Margot Verger. Like the- uh, as far as what's it a, what it's about, it's very, I feel like it's very difficult to explain what Ginger Snaps is about. And you also very Jennifer's easy. body? You're mostly there. It's about, some, it's, it's about being a teenager in suburbia, pretty much. Yeah, it's, it's about, uh, the IMDb summary is two death-obsessed sisters Outcasts in their suburban neighborhood must deal with the tragic consequences when one of them is bitten by a deadly werewolf. Um, the Amazon teaser text says nothing about werewolves, which I think is hilarious. Makes me hope that there's a trailer out there that's cut in a way to make this look like a Gilmore Girls-esque show about like <laughs> two sisters. I think there's too much. Uh, well, I don't know how much suicidal ideation is in Gilmore Girls. I would hope not this much. It's not textual. I mean, but you know, <laughs> it's there. The, my my one very special note I, I pulled out about this from uh, IMDb as well is that uh, director John Fawcett refused to have CGI effects in the film, um, opting to actually do like creature effects uh, done with prosthetics and makeup and stuff, which I think is a great choice, yeah. uh, especially considering the time period in which this, which this was made. And us having watched Resident Evil fairly recently, in which the conclusion is just a CGI thing coming at people. The <laughs> like, worst that the practical effects look in this movie is still so much better than any CGI they could have done, like mm -hmm. at, in 2000 on the budget 
on their less than $5 million budget in 2000. Yeah, absolutely. Practical effects is the way to go. Yeah. One of the things that I love most about Ginger Snaps sort of ties to, which is that it's a very, very, very genre aware movie. Like it, it knows what it's doing. It knows what it's riffing off of and it knows sort of what it's homaging and what kind of traditions it's appealing to. And I think the practical effects are a huge, huge part of what makes it able to pull that off. I love how Bridget's first move is, well, I'm going to watch a bunch of werewolf movies and take notes. Yes. <laughs> well, I, after I saw, I think American Werewolf in Paris, which is the uh, ill-fated sequel to American Werewolf in London came out before this movie. And I think it was one of the more recent uh, werewolf movies to this. And um, the werewolf in this movie looks amazing. And I will also, compared to that especially, I will also mention that the the practical effects in this movie are bad in the best places because, you know, the most upsetting sad animal death that we're going to talk about with the triggers, because we have to say that, the, the effects with that are not very good. And thank goodness, because this movie, I can't, I know we're, we're going to get there. There is a lot of unnecessary sad animal death in this movie. So before, so much. We, before we get to the triggers, so uh, much. let's talk very quickly about scare level. Uh, would you say this is uh, spoopy as in not scary, spooky as in a little scary, terrifying as in very scary, or just generally existentially disconcerting? I'm going to say spooky because it's definitely scary, but like Emily said, it's all like done in this very kind of over-the-top, aware of kind of the history of effects of horror movies. Like the blood is over the top movie, fake movie looking blood. So it's definitely scary, but the kind of wink and a nod execution of the gore, I feel like keeps it in the spooky rather than full on terrifying. I'd put it between spooky and, and existentially disconcerting. And I think that existentially disconcerting needs to be in there. And this is gonna date me very, very specifically, but this movie came out the summer after my senior year of high school. So there's a lot in it that's very directly identifiable um, and relatable for me. But also it's a movie that for me, if I were, if I were trying to figure out where to shelve it, the main factor I would, I would consider is that I'd want it to be in the same section as Heather's, even if it was just the two of them. <laughs> this, Heather's and Ginger Snaps would be one hell of a double feature. Right? There are incredible parallels in this movie, and I'm sure it's it's uh, deliberate. But um, yeah, I'm I'm gonna have to agree with you, Jay, that on pretty much all those counts, because you know the effects, the, the sort of horror element of the movie is kind of spooky, spoopy. The the idea of the movie, the relationships with the movie, and the, the the grand theme of the movie is existentially terrifying or just upsetting. I mean, it's it's there. Yeah, it's more disturbing and sad than yeah. than scary, even in the the spookiness direction. Yeah, I think this the actual spooky stuff in it is some of the least affecting stuff that happens in it. I mean, there's, you know, a couple of jump scares here and there. But yeah, I think it's much more, it's much more existentially disconcerting. And to sort of take that over to the, the trigger warning section, it is because the two like biggest trigger warnings in here are suicidal ideation and lots and lots of animal death so many dead yeah. dogs why why are you doing this to me jeremy this this movie is the sworn enemy of uh does the dog die.com i haven't seen this many 
unnecessarily and wantonly dead dog since I read JoJo's Bizarre Adventures. If you know something about JoJo, there's a lot of dead dogs. Yeah, I mean, but this isn't just like, you know, off-screen animal death. There's, you know, bits. And again, the special effects are campy looking and they're the campiest here. It's still it still does not. I mean, I'm I'm a cat person. I love dogs. Um, you know, I don't have any dogs that are essentially like my dependents or whatever, but I if you're a dog person, be warned. I this have is rough. Many no, no. a bone to pick with the pet owners of Bailey Downs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They are all terrible pet owners. You're, yeah, they're, uh, their demeanor gives me pause. They are mm. all leaving their dogs outside knowing that there is some kind of large animal running around outside killing dogs at night. There yeah. is yeah. a Specifically dog dogs. serial killer <laughs> in this town and nobody is letting their dog come inside. This, this suburb is the, the dog equivalent of Gotham City. Like, just... This movie is most existentially terrifying from the perspective of these dogs. This is Secret Life of Pets and now fucking dog Jason has shown up. <laughs> Well, this is this is part of the this sort of suburban surreality of it, I think. Yeah. That you have these people who know horrible things are happening and just keep aggressively maintaining their rictus grins and routines. And nobody gives a fuck. Like you have the actual pet owner who again didn't let their pet in despite the dog serial killer screaming and wailing, and everyone in the neighborhood just looking around being like, huh. Yeah, dog serial killer yeah. got another one. How about that? Yeah. I mean, there's there's some we can read into that, but um, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. The yeah. and the the suicidal ideation. You know, we have a couple of teens who are obsessed with death and obsessed with suicide. There's a lot of imagery and a lot of talk about it. A lot of it owing itself to that sort of the the '90s obsession with self destruction. That's you know so common in grunge and all that kind of stuff i mean i grew up with it i'm sure a lot of you did too but it is you know very extreme here and there's a lot of that similar like suburban blase detachment from the the horror of uh that kind of destruction and then by the standards of horror movies there's plenty of blood and gore but it's nothing really like over the top um and it's nothing other than the dogs, nothing particularly visceral. Yeah, there's cannibalism here, but it's fairly tasteful. Yeah. <laughs> As Jay has pointed out in the notes here, uh, there is some like dubious consent stuff. And uh, there's definitely some bullying and general high school shit in this, um, which is uh, not particularly fun, but fairly standard to, I think, like movies of this time. <laughs> it's, it's no worse yeah. than the craft. In fact, it feels very much like the craft in some high school areas. Let's call that the end of our uh, non-spoilery section. We'll we'll dive into the the full-on spoilers and stuff of what this movie is about. So if you haven't seen it yet and you want to, this is your your chance to get out before we uh, tell you everything that happens in it. Doesthedogdie.com, which is oh, yeah. it literally just starts with a dead dog. <laughs> yeah, this movie start begins with like dead dog in a backyard where a woman is raking leaves from trees that aren't there. This movie um, feels like it st- starts out already having been Pleasantville and then werewolves come. Oh, but I'm a cheerleader actually goes on that shelf too. I just realized with the, oh, the yeah. specific oh, yeah. suburban suburban horror. Yeah, love that I'm a cheerleader. We are introduced to Bailey Downs. This is one of the most wastelandy 
suburban wastelands that I've seen in a film because it the housing project itself looks a lot like a set but it's it is believable as an actual neighborhood but that's because that's how those neighborhoods are you know the only way other than the Bailey Downs the only way we know this is in Canada is all the kids in the street are playing uh street hockey instead of like driving their motorbikes or whatever someone's driving their motorbike up that was the thing Downs. I noticed this time is is everybody's playing hockey, if either street hockey or field hockey in this movie. I was like, oh, it is Canada. Well, and Emily Perkins's intense Canadian accent. That one I didn't pick up as much until she apologized for something. And then I was like, oh, oh, no. Oh, Bailey um, Downs isn't oh, yeah. as bad as the suburb I grew up in, but it is as bad as the sub as the suburb I grew up in is in my memory. <laughs> mean to it. It reminds me a whole, whole lot of, you know, of, of different climate region, but, but a lot of, of kind of planned communities in the city I grew up in, which is Sarasota, Florida. Notorious for not actually being the setting of Donnie Darko. <laughs> I've seen communities like that. I mean, I always thought it'd be a great setting for a horror uh, film. It's like some towns in like Central Valley, California, where it can be like a mix of just like very rural, like farmland, a lot of like kind of sort of deserty mountains. And then every now and then, like someone just copied and pasted in Photoshop, this super out of time and space, Northeastern suburban like neighborhood with even the right trees and foliage that are not supposed to be there. And it is so real. If you grew up around a place like this, there are things like, especially around this time, there are things you can take as red. Like Mm -hmm. there is nowhere for kids to hang out indoors except for the local mall. That never comes up in the movie. But again, that's something where if you can recognize Bailey Downs, like, you know that. I'm not surprised that element doesn't come up in the movie because these two girls clearly do not hang, have any friends except for each other. And clearly do not hang out at the mall, true. Yeah, I'm um, worried about how much Ginger might have enjoyed Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, speaking of Ginger, we meet uh, Ginger, played by Catherine Isabel, and Bridget, played by Emily Perkins, who are two sisters uh, who live in a basement. If a hippie decorated an Eastern European jail cell. I have a few descriptions of their aesthetic, one being 90s super flammable shrine aesthetic and then um, institutional hospital. And this basement is crazy. We'll see how crazy it gets. But there's like, it's like the the family started an addition on the basement and then it became this labyrinthine uh, structure. So I guess subterranean, somewhat subterranean structure of unfinished walls with the uh, insulation out. I'm like fiberglass. It was the 90s. We did lines of that stuff. Oh, yeah. I, well, yeah. So, I mean, but it, it is very, it does have a lot of character, even though it's so weird. Usually these, you know, when like with the craft, you have something that's very like homey and, you know, it, there's a lot of candles everywhere, but everything still feels so desolate. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of, um, you know, it doesn't feel very lived in. There's another one of those points where I'm just like, yes, this movie was made for me personally. My high school bedroom, which was the greatest bedroom ever, as far as I was concerned, was a garage. Um, it was attached to the rest of the house. It had been s- sort of converted into a real room, by which I mean the cement floor had been painted over with epoxy. But that was pretty much it. So it had these these whitewashed cinder block walls. It was drafty as hell. It had a metal ceiling, which sounded amazing when it rained. It was on the opposite end of the house from everything else. It was gigantic. Because of because the walls were the texture they were, I couldn't hang anything on them. So I'd just paint on them with acrylics. Sounds awesome. It was fantastic. It was the best high school bedroom ever. And... 
while theirs is is much much more capital a aesthetic like yeah it feels cozy and familiar to me so i'm not sure exactly how to describe ginger style but bridget is cosplaying ali sheedy in the breakfast club the whole movie this was my outfit in the entirety of high school before the internet i didn't know that like that was a thing but yeah, that was the thing. And she's wearing, I mean, they're also, I assume, you know, it's its October, it's Canada. I guess it's, it's probably cold. Poor Catherine Isabel having to film in Canada during all with all those belly shirts. Also, Perfect. the fact that their names are Ginger and the name that's as close as possible to Brunette. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think about that. I have to believe it just started as like Ginger and Brunette and we'll figure out another name for the brown haired girl later. And they're like, Brunette, Brunette, Br- Bridget. Yeah, Ginger and Bridget, fucking nailed it. Let's keep going. <laughs> yeah, is Emily Perkins wearing a wig? Yes. Okay. Very noticeably. Yeah, I'm just double checking. Cause also like, you know, my hair was uncontrollable at that age. I mean, I, she seems a little bit older than the teen that she's representing. Um, yeah, and these two have uh, a very fun hobby, which is staging elaborate suicide or murder pastiches around uh, around the house and taking pictures of them. And then, I don't know, presenting student films of them at school. Don't specifically search for this scene. The FBI will give you a visit. Mm-hmm. If you search for the scene, there's a decent chance you will find my Tumblr. Oh no! So fair warning. Well, I mean, okay, that that yeah. that tracks. I, I don't know if Jeremy shared these, but I sent him a couple links. the The Halloween before I came out and started going by Jay and transitioning, my high school best friend and I were Ginger and Bridget for Halloween. That's and cool. we recreated almost the entire I fake suicide it. montage. Oh my god! That's over a, a day. lot. It okay. was it that's, was a lot. It was a lot of fun. That's and it was intense it, Halloween, it, it, and I love it. Also. This is pretty much homemade student snuff films. And these students are into it. Yeah. And these these uh, girls can really, really make some props. Like, you know, they should be like Stan Winston should be giving them a call. They have a future in prop making and uh, um, special effects. Absolutely. Watch a movie about these like two morbid sisters that like make it in the hot like the movie making business as a horror special effect artist and just like their journey through hollywood during like this golden age of practical effects fucking I'd, oh that'd be a dope series tm yeah so also at school in addition to showing everybody their uh their snuff film um titled life and bailey downs this is for a yes. class project <laughs> yes Bridget is being bullied by the cool, uh, the cool kid, Trina, who is the captain of the uh, girls field hockey team, which is, again, how you know it's Canada. Ginger is, is kind of standing like, up for her. It, that, that feels very Northeast. If it's fall, like I, at least where I grew up, like if it's fall, then field hockey would be the biggest uh, girls high school sport. And you know, I'm from California because I have never played field hockey. Yeah, I was not aware of it existing for a very long time. (laughs) I don't fully understand the appeal. Someone's like, hey, let's take hockey and get rid of the whole skating part. That seems like the main appeal. (laughs) But uh, hey, so so long as you're having fun. No one is having fun in that scene. No. I, I really am upset at the fucking douchey high school cat collars for ruining my off-brand Republica field hockey sequence. And they are just allowed to cat call. 
Like they're just three of them. And there's a whole team of girls with a, uh, I assume like a gym teacher or somebody, there's some sort of authority figure there. They just are like, whoa, run, bounce, you know? And they're just saying the worst shit. The rampant sexual harassment going on yeah. at the school. Um, nobody's doing anything, so. Yeah, again, that, that rings pretty true to high school in the 90s experiences for me. Yes, that as well, yeah. Except for being athletic in any way, which I definitely was not. It feels much more real than the the craft idea of girls that go and hang out outside the fence to watch boys practice football. Especially I, I golf football. girls. That wasn't a thing. Especially Skeet Ulrich. <laughs> Circa the craft. But speaking uh, of Skeet Ulrich, we have an um, an alternate Skeet Ulrich. Basically, this this movie's uh, Skeet Ulrich from the craft, who is the worst. So I, Jason McSomething. Yeah, Jason. <laughs> Definitely Jason McSomething. Big fuckhead. Uh, but he is played by Jesse Moss. And I think this is his first horror movie, but that actor would go on to do a whole bunch of horror movies, including Final Destination 3, The Uninvited, and one of my absolute personal favorites, uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Oh, yes. oh, I love that movie so much. He yeah, is a- the main villain in that movie. He is that recognizable in this. Makes a lot of sense to me because he's he's got that, he he has that very specific like, upper middle class suburban white douchebag look. You feel like he it doesn't actually need hair products. It just comes out naturally <laughs> spiked. <laughs> he woke up like that. The practice ends when uh, when somebody gets pushed onto a dead dog. I guess how, Bridget, how I think does no one notice that dog? How does nobody notice this gruesome dog corpse in the middle of the field? He's like a Rottweiler. What the how? This I had to go back and see. Like, did she put see it on purpose? Like, no. Just what? What? Teams start out on opposite ends of the field. How long were they playing with nobody noticing this gruesome dog corpse? So it may be that I'm primed for this just by talking about X-Men continuity, but I I feel like there, I, I I can pull out a plausible explanation for this, which is that it's basically an exaggerated version of the same thing where the woman yells about her dog dying and everyone goes back to their, to playing in the street. Right. It's, it's this, it's, it's like, the degree of myopia of this town in general is such that they can play field hockey over a dog corpse corpse and not notice it until someone falls in it. The alternate explanation is that people did notice and that Trina deliberately pushes Bridget into it. I mean, Bridget doesn't notice because she wasn't paying attention. I mean, I think they must have noticed because they are all nonplussed by the presence of this dog corpse. I mean, it's possible that everybody but Bridget noticed because Bridget never looks up in this movie. Yeah, Uh and she's also got her hair in her face constantly, which is also I never looks up and she never really looks at people who aren't ginger i I can speak from experience the hair in the face does limit the visibility a little bit yeah that's why you use a hair tie for sports (laughs) she uh, does not no yeah that's uh, if you actually want to participate (laughs) bridget absolutely does not want to participate in the sports ball yeah, Ginger and Bridget could not more obviously be the two girls from PE class that opt to walk laps while everybody else plays a, oh, yeah. plays a sport. I missed the very important introduction of uh, Sam. JD. Excuse me, Sam. He could be named JD. Very plausible. Um, he is Christian Slater from Heathers. Like, this guy is that character. Oh, that That's JD. Better. I was going to say. He's less aggressively evil. That's the yeah. of a 90s That's haircut. True. He bought it I from the 90s haircut. say the <laughs> version of this movie where Zach Braff plays Sam. Holy shit. 
<laughs> this, is, this is the version of the character from Clarissa Explains It All who took a sharp left at some point. Oh. <laughs> Speaking of a drug dealer, he's sort of a sort of a knowledgeable, artsy drug dealer. He's a sort of a you know craft drug dealer. <laughs> Yeah, he's, the, he he's, likes- he's consistently the one who who has the most practical information at any given time and skills and is the one who's like, nope, that won't work. Let's try this. Yeah, we, we met him very briefly. Spoilers. Obviously, Trina's into Sam. That's the only reason Sam actually matters in this other than that he is also the drug dealer. Wolfsbane. No, Monkshood, which is not Wolfsbane. Wolfsbane is much, much, much more toxic. Oh, right. I love how they come up with that one, though, where there's like, it has lupus in the Latin name, so maybe it's a werewolf cure. No, he finds it, he finds it in a, in a, in, in like, in a book about werewolves that, that Bridget has for some reason. I like that he goes, well, clearly if I inject people with wolfsbane, they'll die. So let's, let's try the next best thing. <laughs> Again, he's pragmatic and he knows about plants. Bridget and Ginger decide that they're going to get back at Trina by faking her dog's death, and w- at which point they stumble upon a fresh dog corpse. They're really into stumbling on dog corpses in this. This is where I thought I had in my notes, like, Ginger's going to be a Hannibal villain. When she sees this dog corpse and she's like, hey, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Like, help me grab this dog corpse. We've got Hannibal arts and crafts to do. (laughs) And at this point, uh, Ginger also has her first period, which is a big plot point in this movie. She she starts bleeding at this point, and presumably this is why this is what attracts the werewolf, who grabs Ginger and tries to pull her off into the woods. Ginger manages to do some pretty good getting away from a werewolf for one of these movies. Uh, For somebody who has slammed around by a werewolf several times. She also, Bridget also hits the werewolf with her Polaroid camera, which is like old school Polaroid camera. So that thing's the size of like a small personal computer. Like it's big, but she beans this thing multiple (laughs) times in the head with this giant camera, which I think is, um, I think is powerful as, you know, an artsy type. Emily Perkins' ability to perform just absolute acting on instinct panic is a lot of what sells this movie. Oh yeah. And they're running away from the werewolf. Uh, they run across the street and almost get hit by a van and the werewolf does get hit by a van and there's just pieces of werewolf everywhere. Uh, and they call the van a truck, which I assume must be some sort of Canada thing. So they refer to this van as a truck the entire movie, which was very confusing to me. Yeah, I, know, I noticed that uh, at waiting one point. for somebody to drive a truck. And he was like, let's throw it in the back of the truck. And then he drove a van. And I was like, what is going on? That drug dealer is actively smoking, hits this thing and just has a look of, I'm not high enough to deal with this. Yeah. Yeah. Sam in that scene is the most relatable he is at any point in the movie. Absolutely. From then on, he's like, look, I watched Blade on VHS. I'm pretty sure I'm in the werewolf version of that and I've got it under control. It's like, you do not have it under control, Sam, but I, your confidence is comforting. He does does not think he has it under control at any point. I mean, he's calm about it, but his general message is, yeah, this is, this is really, this is just fucked. This is fucked. This is completely fucked, but I'm going to be chill about it because I have the low-key 90s dude haircut. Yeah, and he does have a really great way of like he'll hear of of he'll hear hoofbeats and assume it's a unicorn kind of <laughs> logic. Because he, he immediately has... like, oh, this is I hit a lycanthrope. Because it looked like a dog, but I found its circumcised penis in the grill of my truck. <laughs> that comes up. Yeah. yeah. He also he generally has my reaction to things uh, that I should panic about, but that I know I can't change. Which is oh fuck it, I can't do anything about that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I hit dog monsters that have human penises. 
that's life in Ontario. That raises some really specific questions about how lycanthropy works in this movie, which which they really never go into, which I really appreciate. They do a little bit more in Ginger Snaps too. Um, And I have mixed feelings about that. I'm gonna say what biology this movie does offer. I did not enjoy, so I'm grateful for any biology it didn't include. Yes. Speaking of biology, I actually really appreciate how intensely it is about periods and puberty because oh, yeah. it's 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 brilliantly lampshading the extent to which teen girl horror is aggressively and violently metaphor f- for puberty a lot of the time. And it's just being like all the horrors there that's the metaphor but also actual. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's a lot of there there's a lot of there's there are a lot of viscera but there's also just a lot of straight up menstrual blood. It works in a meta commentary of pointing out how pervasive the theme is while still never having had a, that particular experience. I, so I, I don't know. It seemed to explore the themes very well while still kind of commenting on its per- prevalence in horror movies. It certain it absolutely, um, comments on the themes without vilifying them so much because a lot of times you have like the the evil childbirth trope or you have the evil like you know woman takes over her sexuality and becomes evil trope um and in this movie you know you do have a separation between the the menstruation and the horror but like a lot of the the menstruation situation that they come through is actually making the the werewolf situation less bad because they're like yeah. oh it's normal oh i'm just going through some normal stuff and and by at this point in the movie we have been introduced to the mom Pam- pamela it's one of the greatest characters in all horror ever right who i or have die a lot of thoughts about pamela especially the last we see of pamela in this movie especially i yeah i have a lot of questions about that but yeah, Pamela thinks she's in a 90s sitcom where like she's helping her daughters with, you know, problems that might come along the way until like the last half hour of the movie. And then Pamela just takes she a knows. hard shift. She knows what movie she's in. Pamela I feel like she always knew. left turn and then takes a couple other left turns after that. But they're all completely consistent with the way she's characterized before. I love yes. the casting and just the way the parents are played in general. When she, she is powerful. When she says, like, okay, I'm going to burn the house down. And she's like, well, what about dad? And she just has this look of, it's like, was she just trying to score a bonus murder? Real <laughs> talk, was she just trying to be like, well, I got to run away. Might as well kill my husband while I'm at it. I mean, they I- do mention that they are, they are in counseling. Um, but the, that's the thing about, another thing about this movie that, that where this is introduced is that you have um, Pamela, and then you have the nurse character, which are the the two adult women characters that have a lot of screen time. Both of them are incredibly wholesome, aggressively wholesome to that teenage embarrassment level where you can, they, they are presented so brilliantly because they are both embarrassing, but as an adult woman myself, I'm like, I want to be them when I grow up. Like I see, you know, the nurse is presenting the menstruation with like talking about and then the flow will become a black sludge which is how you know that we're towards the end of the cycle and i think this movie was the first time i'd ever heard someone like describe that aloud 
Yeah. And without without again aggressively euphemizing it. Yeah, and like the it, nurse gives her condoms too and is like, use these. Uh, fucking Canada, man. Although apparently that would have happened in New York too. So I I am married to a New Yorker. I grew up in Florida. Uh-huh. One of the things that is just infinitely fascinating to both is compare to both of us is comparing our sex ed experiences, which basically might as well have taken place on different planets. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that yours was on the same planet as mine in North Carolina here, which is uh, um, did you, were were you guys abstinence only? I'm uh, gonna guess the planet basically was, was like venereal disease ed. Like, here's what it looks like. We got like. that. We, we, got, we got everything disease. kills you. But they weren't allowed to say that condoms were safer. They were not allowed to say that anything could make the, the only the only way to avoid sexually transmitted diseases and um, pregnancy was to not have sex until marriage. And I volunteered at Planned Parenthood and shit. So obviously, I that worked out okay for me. But. Yeah, it was it was not great. I was really lucky. I realized years later that I had a number of teachers who literally risked their jobs to talk about contraception. Wow. Yeah, you could be immediately fired for that in Florida. Oof. Ah, this is why we can swear on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, it's fuck. And again, this is this (laughs) is part of why, like, the intensely weird state of like suburban blinders in this movie makes sense to me because it's clearly over the top and it's clearly satirical but i know exactly what it's satirizing speaking from you know even though i was like growing up in cal i grew up in sacramento still a pretty conservative i mean sacramento is relatively conservative town and the quintessential well i don't know if i would say quintessential suburban wasteland but it is a very very suburban very wasteland much much wasteland wow the the first i learned about puberty it was a video where a woman drew a uterus with pancake batter so yeah so you know (laughs) the expressions i can't you know this is a this is not a visual medium um but the expression that i'm seeing right now on my screen or was it just a waste of batter we never found out whether they ate the pancakes or not god i hope so with jelly (laughs) <laughs> no, just just in general i mean I, I just really like pancakes and i feel bad about pancake batter being wasted but i also kind of feel like if you're the kind of person who makes a film where someone draws a uterus with with pancake batter you're the kind of person who thinks it's funny to then eat the pancake yeah well i mean it was also i was in fifth fucking grade <laughs> like <laughs> well i'm just trying to figure out like what is the right age for that conversation it's earlier than that because I yeah. my so my mom learned about periods after she got her first one. That's not the right. She was born in 1955, know. which is is yeah you know, obviously way before any of this. But like from what I gathered, that's a very common experience in her generation. And then there's this this whole this whole you know I was I was one of the the grew up reading the the reading are you there God it's me Margaret thing which I feel like covers 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 a fairly wide range. Apparently they've updated it. Um, to, to include uh, adhesive-backed sanitary products, which I wish they had when I was a kid because God, I was so confused because um, it was already pretty out of date by then. Yeah. But speaking of that, actually, I, I gotta say the scene with Bridget in the tampon aisle just completely overwhelmed. Yes, that is, monolithic wall. It's, it's relatable in multiple ways and it's not exclusively this, but it is the most intensely transmasculine experience I've ever seen portrayed in a movie. Yeah, it, it just reminds me of that scene from the Hurt Locker. <laughs> like just the, the traumatizing of being on that cereal aisle and just seeing all the 
cereal for miles and miles, not knowing what the fuck to do with it. God, uh, and we get fucking Jason back. Jason is what I thought the victims and Jennifer's body were going to be like. Mm-hmm. And they all turned out to be like Billy, baby Billy Joe Armstrong. If, if they had made the Jennifer's Body TV show, Jason would be one of the like weekly victims on that show. The Jennifer's this, Body TV show we've so often wished had happened. I really couldn't help but compare this movie in so many ways to Jennifer's Body just because that central character dynamic and a lot of the plot, it just feels like the prototype and the inspiration for it. Yeah. And it's just so interesting seeing kind of like what works and what doesn't. And I feel like the big one for me is uh, the benefits of them not being sisters in Jennifer's body means that Jennifer's body can actually be queer mm-hmm. while ginger snaps kind of can't be because any queerness is just too wrapped in the additional weirdness of them then being sisters i was gonna um, say, I, I appreciate the the way in which there's like semi gaslighting in this movie but they're kind of doing like ginger is kind of doing it to herself because literally every like symptom of becoming a werewolf is also a symptom of getting your period like there's they talk about the excessive bleeding they talk about the strange pains and getting hair in places where it's not supposed to be oh the way they especially word that one because bridge is talking about like ginger's horrible claw wounds that are healed and now growing hair and bridget only then words this already puberty-based discussion as and she's growing hair in new places (laughs) and And the nurse is like well comes with the territory that was really where i wanted to like i want to bang on the desk and be like bridget come on there is a better way to word that question and you know it yeah, yeah no. but i mean they're already on thin ice like I guess, I guess it's there's... an indictment of canadian ontario sex ed I mean, obviously <laughs> this is all secondhand too but for, for me but this also sounds to me like a lot of like discussions that friends of mine had with parents or teachers or other people like that at the at various times in their lives but especially around this time when there was like something do you know (laughs) when there was like something really wrong with them yes people were like oh it's it's your period and then it turned out like they almost died from something and for anybody to be like oh actually it shouldn't be like that we just like wrote you off because you know this is an extremely common experience for female assigned people. The specifically, I, oh, that just happens stuff. Like, I know people who've had cancer and basically been like, oh yeah, periods are like that sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I was, I had to leave school because my cramps were so bad. And I, you know, at the time it was just like, oh, oh, I thought you had appendicitis. Oh, it was just your period? Uh, whatever, you know, and I had to take drugs for it and stuff like that. But like, yeah, there's a, there is an interesting, that, that sort of euphemistic tab, like unspoken language of taboo that comes with talking about your period that, you know, you can't really talk about it directly with people. It's all, you know, it's really hard to talk directly, especially when you're, you know, a teen in the nineties. Well, and especially when, in, as in Ginger's case, you're a 16 year old having your first period. Yeah. So there's, there's the added weird around that. 
Yeah, because she's, you know, uh, as the mom, the mom calls them late bloomers, quote unquote. And, you know, they're still trying to figure that out and they haven't had to deal with it yet and all this kind of stuff. And it's still, I mean, even when you've learned all this stuff, when you've seen the pancake uterus, it's still, I mean, maybe because of the pancake uterus, it's still really difficult to talk about. And so when you get into that mode of talking about the problems that you're having with your body, especially as uh, someone who is female assigned or someone who's dealing with, you know, ovaries and all that jazz. Uh, there's a lot of weird dismissal because of the long time tradition of just letting women deal with their shit because it's mysterious. Um, I sort of think of this as blue fluid syndrome in, in homage to, to pad commercials. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it where, you know, you can only talk about it allegorically or, or, or metaphorically. When I, um, I wanted to bring up that, like, uh, one of you was, I think Jay was mentioning, uh, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret. Um, and I remember very distinctly as, as somebody who was, you know, who was male assigned, who was going through, you know, fourth grade when, like, they literally took all of the girls out of class to another class to like read this stuff and talk about this stuff. They taught us the guy side of it, which is all about five minutes about shaving. The girl's side of this is, I, I gather, fairly intense. And like, of course, like guys don't know shit about periods and are scared the of them. girl's side of it is 90% sex will kill you. Like that. <laughs> I mean, intense. Assuming, yeah. again, assuming we had roughly the same curriculum, it's 90% sex will kill you. Yeah, because I think like, there's a, there's a lot of hay made about, I mean, and deservedly so about guys not being sympathetic about periods, not knowing basic facts about periods. And I do think there's a lot to be said about that, but also like society and school actively goes out of its way to make sure that you don't know anything about that. And like, that's, I think that's a problem. Totally with, with, that, with that taboo language barrier that has been enforced um, that has, you know, promoted this ignorance. Um, I, I feel like my school was probably a, better than most because I do remember they kept everyone in the same class and like taught everyone about like periods and STDs and like how sex, like, you know, all the whole sperm egg process works. I just know that there was zero discussion or mention about sexual identity or orientation. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't touch that. We were, we were in fact, um, explicitly, um, I was the co-founder of a club that was just called The Alliance because that was as specific <laughs> as it was allowed to get. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, Ben, I think, I think you're about like, you're, you're a lot younger than me, but like, that was that, the 90s. The 90s. Yeah. Wait, how young are you? I'm 30, so oh. I was born in 90. Okay, yeah. oh, okay. I'm 38, so okay. Yeah. I'm just I'm like, wait a minute. But yeah, no, I mean, I was, I, I uh, graduated in 2000, so, Jay? Yep. Did your school do the obnoxious smoke-free class of 2000 stuff? Maybe. I don't remember. I remember no. it kind of vividly just because it was, it, it felt so random and gratuitous and so many people I knew smoked. Oh, I was in fifth grade in 2000 and you're looking at a D.A.R.E. essay contest winner. <laughs> I actually did win a uh, like a um, anti-drug have... poster. Oh, nice! I still have this stuff flying. We're I think we're all dare grads here. And yes, I I I, I, trans I transferred to public school just in time to not have to do it. <sighs> Thank goodness. 
I am I am a graduate of my father teaches at a college where rumor is that he co-invented LSD, which he didn't, but my parents are fairly honest with me about drug stuff. <laughs> you mean you didn't learn about uppers, one type of pill, and downers, a different color type of pill? My parents are not honest with me about drugs, but the older I get, the more I slowly peel back the layers of my father's like 60s hippie, like secret origin issue zero. My dad just told me about bad trips and how he never did LSD because he was afraid of having a bad trip. And I was like, I've, I don't know if he actually never did LSD, but he certainly sold the bad trip situation. My dad just yeah, gave me Lord was, of the Rings, you know. <laughs> drugs are really expensive, but. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My dad just, just read. I did know, have that. Alexander and Anthony to me. That was it. So. Honestly, more than any of the, like, the health concerns or the bad effects, that was the most effective dare message they had was just like look how much you'll fucking spend on cigarettes i had a good friend who at one point sat down and did the math and determined that his comic book habits still cost him marginally less than a heroin habit would and now he's an editor at dc so bless (laughs) oh i have tried figuring out how much i could how much i've put into producing my own comic books i'm like oh I could have put a down payment on a small suburban like house for this. this. Yeah, but it would have been in Bailey Downs. It would have been in Bailey Downs. And honestly, I'd rather have the comic book series. (laughs) For real. Um, so I want to go back to Jay's point about, um, the, the having sex will kill you. Ginger not only does Ginger have these pains and everything, but she gets very aggressively sexual. She has desires. She thinks she's getting aggressively sexual. What she realizes that is that she's getting aggressively murderous. Yeah. She feels those impl- impulses and assumes that anything she feels that strongly has to be wanting sex. Look, who among us haven't thought we were super horny when really we just wanted to murder everyone? That's, I mean, yes. I mean, that's, 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 that's teenage in, in a nutshell, isn't it? Isn't that what the kids call a mood? Um, indeed. Ginger is making Aggressive. out with this movie Skeet Ulrich clone, Jason. Um, yeah. She's, she's convinced that she's getting extra horny. Meanwhile, Bridget is convinced that she's turning into a werewolf and is doing research by watching werewolf move, werewolf movies and, and consulting her local drug dealer. Um, <laughs> What what would you do if you thought someone you knew was turning into a werewolf? Man, research before Wikipedia was rough. (laughs) Yeah, I think the internet would have made a lot of, may have made a lot of difference. We're not sure. I mean, who knows? I just love it's like I have a supernatural problem to the blockbuster and (laughs) my drug dealer. (laughs) I mean, it's not even her drug dealer. It's just the the drug dealer. Well, she knows she knows that he's seen a werewolf. Like, the town has the baker, the butcher, the candlestick maker, and the drug dealer. (laughs) I mean, come on. And the werewolf. And And the werewolf. werewolf. Always got a werewolf. Um, I'm pretty sure I knew some werewolves, but that's beside the point. The, the... The thing here is that, you know, we're, Ginger is turning into a werewolf, but all of her symptoms are the same as puberty. So, you know, she gets very offended. And yes, Jeremy? Except this is also the point where Bridget finds Ginger's tail. Oh, um, well, that, that usually doesn't happen. Which, as far as I know, is not a symptom of having a period. Um, yeah. To the best of my personal knowledge, which granted is all secondhand, but. Uh, excuse, I've got some phone calls to make. Uh oh Oh, no but i mean i I said usually ginger is essentially being accused by her sister of becoming a werewolf when she thinks she's just having pure uh you know puberty except for the tail thing of course ginger's pissed off at at bridget 
because she's making her ascension to womanhood into something monstrous. And as we've talked about, Ginger wants to fuck, but she really wants to murder. And there's a this relationship between sex and violence here that comes a lot is it's you know, it's it's subtext in basically everything. But here there is a very very important literal connection between her need to kill and her need to fuck which speaks a lot to the teenagers especially you know teen and puberty relationship and especially you know, people who are raised as girls or raised with a you know um female uh sex ed and everything having sex will kill you kind of thing you know the the, the violence of um the sexual awakening is is this i mean it's problematic and we know that but um in this movie it does take it to that literal level which i i feel is is really important well and it inverts it usually when you've got a female character especially a teenage girl who's seeking sex in a horror movie she is the one who will experience consequences from that and those consequences will be disproportionate and ginger snaps inverts that spectacularly i mean Mm -hmm. gin there nothing nothing happens to ginger as a result of this like she realizes that that wasn't what she was actually after but she is as okay as she was before hey um (laughs) which is i mean not great but we get sam's whole uh forget the hollywood rules version we don't know if silver bullets are necessary or even if they work he killed something with his van they decide to uh pierce pierce her belly button with a with pure silver which is a lot. The the belly button piercing scene is particularly rough, um, which happens I, after Ginger eats Norman the dog, who is uh, the the neighbor dog. Which two state two things? A. Why are people still leaving their dogs outside at night? And B. At this point in the movie, I thought Ginger had also eaten Jason, but was only feeling bad about having eaten the dog. And I'm like, yeah, that checks out. I would only feel bad about one of those. The thing that always really hits me about that scene is is Ginger's moment of where did you get the ring and Bridget saying she found it and Ginger saying oh, yeah that's a shame because you should have one too and that a lot of what's going on a lot of the emotional arc of this movie is that it's the first time in their lives that Ginger is leaving Bridget behind yeah uh, that's and a really good totally one. do you feel like it's that's more... I mean their relationship is the center of the movie and this is about sort of a cataclysmic shift in it that involves one of them for the first time in both of their lives going somewhere the other at least initially can't follow yeah and it's also this inversion of of the relationship we see at the beginning where ginger is doing everything to protect bridget bridget is trying to protect ginger and ginger is willfully against being protected at this point um you know she yeah, should do anything she can for her. it's definitely where they diverge but what do you think about even though it's ginger you know I feel like it. The movie kind of sets up as like Ginger being the one who's like now, you know, metaphorically going through puberty, going through this transformation. And I feel like you, most movies would try to set it up as Bridget trying to like hold on to like a codependent childhood. But it seems like Bridget is, for her part, okay with them drifting apart a little. And it's Ginger who's kind of trying to force her sister to maybe grow up before she's ready to keep up with her. Yeah, well, there's this sense. I mean, their, their, their whole thing is that, you know, out by 16 or dead in the scene, united against life as we know it. And they are, again, they're like the whole 
idea, their whole identity initially, and this is something their parents comment on too, is kind of as a unit, is Bridget following Ginger. And yeah, that, that Bridget is Bridget is really the protagonist of this movie. And she's definitely and fully the protagonist of Ginger Snaps too, which is is her without Ginger. It's again, it's it's one of those places that feels really familiar in terms of the experience of having been the younger friend of someone who was older than you and kind of ahead of you on every biological, but also social curve. Again, sort of that equation of sex and death and sort of the desperate need to keep that person safe. Also, I mean, it's it's interesting because the name Bridget also refers to Bridget, who is sort of the, the um, Celtic goddess of spring. And, you know, there's some purity stuff in there. There's also a lot of sex stuff in there, at least with the, with the, the original. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, Bridget is sort of like the the. Um, I'm so glad nothing Bridget. with Bridget and Sam ever becomes overtly sexual or romantic. Like, I'm yeah, glad that's, yeah. that stays platonic throughout. Yeah, and especially it's, after Trina's warning. Yeah, Trina. Trina is starting to at this point in the movie after the belly button piercing and all that kind of stuff. Um, Trina is now getting really aggressive with Bridget because Trina likes Sam and Sam's talking to Bridget all the time. And they're mostly just because at this point, Sam thinks, or at least is Bridget thinks that Sam thinks that she's the one who's turning into a werewolf. I feel like Sam is also just emotionally invested in them as werewolf hunting buddies. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, they're I mean, forming a Scooby probably... gang, and she's seeing it as something completely different. Except the truck. what we learned from Trina, and what, what Trina, Trina shows up at their house in the middle of the night after her dog has disappeared. Mm-hmm. And it's the first time we see her without makeup, and she's crying, and she's coming nominally to find her dog and to yell at them. But she finds Bridget, and, part, and she basically tells Bridget that Sam's whole thing is fucking virgins, and like the, the, the direction this goes is, is from the you know, you can't have him, you shouldn't have him too. He can't, I, I can't watch him do this to someone else. That sh- so that's that's part of why I feel okay about Sam getting killed later in the movie. But Yeah, I don't think um, Sam was ever that also, good of a person. It's, it's, it's also such a brilliant shift in the dynamics of, in the social dynamics of the movie and in, in especially, again, the ways that teenage girls are and aren't allowed to relate to each other in this specific scenario. It's, it's the point that really yanks it hard away from Heather's. Yeah. yeah and of course, they've, they've made her relatable just in time for uh, yeah. getting a fight with Ginger and accidentally, accidentally murder herself um, by yeah. slipping and you know, beating her head on the corner of a, a counter. I definitely feel that interpretation. But my other side is just being like, I'm not so sure how much you can be looking out for someone you're also pushing into dog corpses. I mean, I, yeah. I absolutely, but, yeah. I absolutely can see those as two completely, yeah. completely different. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But having, you know, there's, there's that kind of um, appealing to somebody, you know, if, there's a lot, a lot of complex stuff going on there because, you know, as the the jealous girl or jealous anybody will go to st- these um, extremes to try to convince um, somebody to to stay away or you know to to deter somebody from um, their goal um, and you know appealing to Bridget as you know trying to warn her that. Um, 
Sam is a cherry hound, which is an interesting turn of phrase. Yeah, that's so the to to indicate that um, he's into virgins. Trina calls Sam a cherry hound. Has anyone heard that phrase before? I haven't no. heard it before. No, I've, I'm I've, glad I haven't. Is it a Canadian thing? Oof. I don't know. Canadian idiom. That's not canary hound. So also, is not. there a species? Is that like a truffle pig? Is there a species of dog out there that's just really good at finding like actual cherries? I don't know. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give a no on that one. I'm, okay. I'm really confident. Let's hope not. <laughs> uh, but I will oh, say. If so, would they be able to climb trees? Yeah. Well, goats can climb trees. I'm sure dogs could. Wolves there's can climb trees. Yeah. There's a there's a dog that has a thumb. But anyway, there's um anyway. <laughs> um, anyway moving away from fruit finding canines yeah yeah so um this is this is an example of some of the dialogue in the movie dog and hound related oh that's yeah. a really good that's a really good connection i didn't make that oh so, so yes they there's an aggressive scene between uh ginger and trina in which trina effectively murders herself at this point she falls and breaks her head open and then they uh know it's going to look like they killed her so they stick her in a chest freezer in their own basement um i i feel like anytime like milk and blood are mixing it usually means something symbolic but i really can't quite figure out what it means in this movie it's, it's women shit i don't know women's uh, stuff ladies <laughs> i guess i'm honestly more grossed out by the spilled milk but like that's just personal yeah. weird grows out for thresholds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So this scene in the movie is one of the best ones. First of all, the 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 bit where they put Trina in the that freezer is incredibly powerful. I will say right. that the freezer, like a flash, freezes Trina. But in um, minutes, there is some incredibly like incredibly written back and forth here because you know trina's dead on the floor the garage door is coming up the girls are panicking they're trying to hide the body mom comes in on the floor is ginger pretending to be dead again and they're taking pictures and you know the blood the quote-unquote blood it's actual blood they say it's like oh it's our corn syrup and then ginger like offers it to her dad as like the scene after is even more amazing when her, her I, mother goes out to the chest freezer and opens it and is about to look in and Bridget says the only thing she can think of to stop her cold which is what do boys want <laughs> only one thing and it's disgusting yeah well i know that's the thing is that's how no, well they know their mom is that the one way that they can distract their mom completely and fully is not like oh my god what's over there or oh my god you know life is ending it's, I need your sage advice about growing up. This, and mom is there. Like This brief sojourn into we have to hide the crime scene from the parents is such this delightful little moment of like a physical comedy. And for um, a horror movie, I appreciated this. What felt like downright Home Alone-esque shenanigans. <laughs> just some of the best it's some of the best points in the film and uh yeah so now and then they bury trina in the clubhouse back in the yard well they bury most of her because right her fingers break off while they're carrying her because again she's flash frozen and so they are there in the garden for pamela fitzgerald to find the next day pamela yeah so the mom who is also a gardener 
finds well the the dad finds some of uh trina's fingers which had been chipped off because of the flash freezing process and the mom immediately goes oh they're just part of their little death obsession you know and she like waves away the dad okay Uh, i feel like the moral of this story now is becoming if you're gonna do violent crimes first start establishing a backstory of like amateur horror films yeah that's gonna cover a lot of like that initial suspicion for real because the mom the mom well that's the thing too is that this is another really important scene in the movie because the mom gets the fingers and takes them from the dad she's like they're fake (laughs) and then she um immediately puts them in tupperware and puts them in the fridge well, she Which, stops and looks at them for longer and gets more and more visibly distressed. And then yeah. she, she clearly realizes they're real. Yeah. yeah. And then she yeah. doesn't say anything to the dad no. about it, but she does dig up the body. She realizes the fingers are real. She's already planning how like this domino leads to her burning her husband alive. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, there's a whole other horror movie going on with Jason, who is uh, pissing blood at this point. Um, hor- really horrible. It's just horrible. Oh um, yeah, that that was that was very unpleasant to watch. Yeah, and he uh, it ends with him eventually, you know, after they bury Trina, um, confronting Bridget. It's clear that he's turning into uh, an acne wolf. Guys, do you think this movie's about like puberty? <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> he's he's uh, sweating and getting uh, very close and very personal with Bridget, who's luckily saved by uh, janitor man. Um, Poor guy. Um, and he uh, better. yeah, goes goes home to find Ginger at home trying to cut her tail off because Oof. it's it's getting longer and she's trying to uh, deal with it. And this is this had some uh, big Warren Worthington and X Men three energy. Well, yes. and in the comics and in a lot of other contexts, yeah. and it also just has a lot of teenage girl body body issues energy. Yeah, yeah. Like, I know a lot of people who did some really, really self-destructive shit over, I mean, not growing tails, but. I feel like the tail is the most brilliant part of this movie because it is at some point kind of funny, but. Oh, it's hilarious, but it's also very body horror. Yeah, it quickly turns into this thing that's just like so much more indicative of everything else that's happening in this movie than, than, you know, the rest of the stuff. It's like it's legitimately horrifying to be you know as a as a teenager to be growing a tail and not being able to do anything about it and like you know this there's a part of me that's like this should be funny this scene of her like trying to cut this wiggling tail off of her while like she's you know sitting on the toilet but it's not at all no, funny. it's fucked up and sad yeah. and horrifying this is yeah. where it goes into you know existential well that they make the tail also i mean like it's it's uh when she's not like a, you know, becoming a total wolf or whatever, she's just growing this human-skinned tail, um, which is kind of creepy-looking, you know. Um, and they don't, they don't make it. They, they definitely don't make it sexy. Let me tell you that. Um, and they don't sexualize her transformation at all in ways that I really appreciate. So even as she becomes more sexual, she's less and less sexualized by the film. I mean, I I feel like there's there's certain sexuality, like she gets, you know, she her outfits become a lot more revealing, and she's sort of there's um moments that like yeah. Jennifer's body would then later go all in on 
you know, when, when like she first gets those like silver highlights and she just like bursts through the door looking like X Men mm-hmm. Evolution Rogue. But for instance, yeah. when she come when she's coming out to Sam and pulls her shirt open, and she has well, wolf nips. I mean, yeah, by that point, and she's and it's creepy. And like, point, we're in full on body horror. Well, the yeah. only time the only times when she does the sexy thing are in ways that she can control. Like, there's yes. never that prurient camera gaze. And, and the only times that we actually see her body beyond what she's choosing to expose are moments that are specifically about body horror. Yeah, where she's yeah. like, but they don't they don't expose her physically without yeah. having that element of the monster there, of having the 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 werewolf there. So it's more yeah. about her and her relationship to her body rather than our gaze. You know, right. where the camera uh, is. This an opportunity yeah, exactly. to take a knock at cabin in the woods again? <laughs> knock always. Yeah. The tail cutting off thing is is very tragic and very upsetting. And this is after she's like, she and Bridget have these bonding moments where she's like taping her tail to her leg and all this kind of stuff. And trying class. To... Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> this is where Bridget makes the decision to lock Ginger into the bathroom because she's becoming violent and becoming unpredictable and she's got to save her. She can't count on Ginger to save herself. She, she goes to, again to her local drug dealer uh, to help make a uh, anti-werewolf potion out of the monk's hood that she finds laying around her house that was introduced earlier without telling anybody what it was. Ginger breaks out in the meantime, ends up going to school where she uh, eats the guidance counselor before Bridget can get to her. And then Bridget tries to lock her up again in, in the office so they can clean up the guidance counselor mess, at which point the poor janitor walks in on her and he gets hunted and eaten. Um, I feel so bad for the janitor. He is... Yeah. Like that scene, that scene is the scene where, you know, Ginger's absolutely irredeemable, that she's she's crossed a line that there's just no going back from. And I think where Bridget knows it too. But he's yeah. also like the only absolute, I, innocent is a weird term because he's clearly an adult, but at least by the standards of, of the movie, like he is, he is the character who has not been directly involved in any of the awfulness, has shown only good intentions. Ginger goes on a lot about how he's, he's trying, he's clearly like trying to look down Bridget's shirt and checking Bridget out. And if you go back and look through, cause I, after the first time I saw it, I had a moment of, oh shit, did I just miss that? He's very specifically, like there's nothing mm-hmm. that indicates that in, in how he acts. And it's, yeah, like the janitor, the janitor is the point where it's, where what felt like it could be funny and campy just spills over completely into really upsetting and never really leaves that place for the rest of the film. His death honestly felt the most violent and upsetting. Yeah, well, he's, he's also the only one of Ginger's victims who she kind of plays with. Yeah. Yeah. And he's also the only adult man in this film who is not completely useless, like cartoonishly so. The guidance counselor is cartoon and the dad is a cartoon. He is, I believe, also the only non-white character in the movie. Yes, that's yeah. also yes. Yes, cool. yes, which not great, yes. but that will be a point. <laughs> I guess that. That's, that, yeah. that's one element I wish Jennifer's body maybe hadn't been inspired by. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is definitely like where where things very quickly start to go downhill. Yeah, Jennifer, Ginger offers to turn Bridget. Bridget says she'd rather die. Uh, Ginger decides to go after Sam instead. Mom just... really turns a corner here because this is this is where I decided to to love Mom because she finds she catches up with Bridget after having discovered the dead body, and uh, decides Bridget's to, trying like, to hitchhike to the Halloween party where she knows Ginger's headed. Mom is 
very much on team let's burn down the house and run away uh, rather than team let's turn in my kids for murder. She is absolutely right or die. She, you know, doesn't ask any questions or ask very few questions for for this Once again, I can only assume that she has been planning how exactly to burn her house down and run away with her daughters for years. And now like this... this is not a problem. This is an opportunity that she has been waiting for. This, this series of lines that she delivers about Bridget is like, what about dad? And she just says like, oh, he'll only blame me. They all will. Um, which is like, yeah. just such a like, oh, heavy, man. heavy thing. How, here from mom. how she fucked said, she, is this marriage? She delivers this line with the same nonchalance as the nurse delivers the whole thing about the gushing blood and the black sludge. Well, like, honestly, there's a line powerful. that Ginger has when they're uh, burying the when they're burying uh, the other student, the bully. We'll coast on how the world works. Oh, like I just thought that was such a moment of Ginger werewolf or not already being able to not rationalize, but just taking stock of a deck stacked against her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she says nobody thinks a chick will be capable of this. Girls are just either a slut, bitch, a tease, or the virgin next door. This is clearly a character who, not just in society, but again, in that kind of quasi-meta way that this movie is, is railing against even the gender roles of the movie genre that she's in. That she's in. And that at the same time, she's so clearly internalized so much of just based on the way she talks about other girls. Yeah. yeah. There's a line, I mean, her very first line of the movie, and I wrote it down, mm-hmm. uh, wrists are for girls, I'm, I'm slitting, slitting my, my throat. throat. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, all, all of this and this coming through the mom at this moment is like, I mean, I think it's easy to read it as like her just kind of throwing the dad under the bus, but I, I don't think that's at all what Mm-mm. it's meant to be. I think it's much more like this mom realizing that you know no matter no matter what she's done no matter how good her intentions are and how there she is for her kids throughout this whole movie like when you know they find out that these kids have gone bad that they've killed somebody they're just gonna like look at her and see her as a a you know failed mother who raised these you know murdering children um Mm -hmm. and you know just if the story is murdered you go big on the werewolf angle and I feel like she'll come away. I don't I don't know. I don't know if she will like, at this point. The yeah. things that the things that moms specifically get blamed for in the paradigm that the Fitzgerald family lives in, in the Bar- Bailey Downs paradigm. I mean, yeah, she absolutely is gonna get blamed for this. And this is it's so interesting. I really think of of Allison in Orphan Black as kind of another iteration of Pamela in a lot of ways, but specifically especially how she relates to family and just sort of the thinly, thinly covered intense awareness of and rage at the limitations and unfair responsibility that she's saddled with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Now we've missed the bit with Jason. Jason has his resolution. It Uh, mostly serves to deprive us of a MacGuffin. Well, I mean, yeah, Bridget has finished uh, baking the potion with her, her local drug dealer. And at this point, uh, runs into Jason, who has gone immediately to attempting to murder children. As soon as like he begins to be infected as werewolf, he just is like, I'm not mistaking this for being horny. I'm just gonna go murder some children. Brief tangent, I, I, how much do you love that the monk's hood came from a craft supply store? 
<laughs> what kind of craft places do you have in Canada that have monk's hood? Oh, like dude, that's dried- Michael's, man. It was no. just some like dried I- herb that they bulk bought and threw on the shelf. I think this is just like another element of mystery to the mom of like, what kind of craft stores are you going to? I know. I feel like the mom, she's like going to the craft stores in Hereditary or some like. <laughs> she's, a, <laughs> she's got a whole like other thing going on because she's like all about the. And who puts monk's hood in their dried flower assortment? Because that's monk's hood is also poisonous. I mean, people put people put lilies out all the damn time and their cats end up getting killed because of that. Yeah. Don't do that, by the way. Know if your plants are poisonous to cats because most of them are. Yes. um, ASPCA has a great website for that. Cats and dogs. Um, Anyway. Um, So the so Jason um, was attacking children. We find out that he killed his dog and he's very sad and he should be um but he's for some reason attacking a kid in like a dalmatian costume which i'm like there's a whole like deleted scene here uh of like him trying to get the like get the kids candy and like the kid is dressed as a dog and he's apparently in the deleted scene he tells the kid to like howl and bark for him before he tries to murder him but that is all cut out Um, well i interpreted that as the original werewolf was killing dogs so maybe these worlds are just trying to kill dogs or dog-shaped things or things dressed as dogs. Yeah, I thought graduating to humans, and this was part of that process. I yeah, I thought this was just... to be a clear kind of riff on on the werewolves having gone after dogs. Oh yeah, and also the fact that I'm pretty sure that the town is now out of dogs, <laughs> so they now have to just re- rely on children dressed as dogs. <laughs> the next step. Pet store closed for humanitarian purposes. Yeah, for real. Um, yep. Yeah, so she spends all the cure, because Jason attacks her. She spends all the cure on Jason, so now she has to go back to Sam to get more? But Jason, against all odds, lives. Um, yeah, she's going to Sam's uh, greenhouse, which is apparently also where the teenagers party on the weekends, um, which is where uh, Ginger is also headed to go seduce Sam with her furry wolf nippled body. She's um, not furry. That's part of what makes the wolves in this so creepy. They are not furry. They're just like weird, furless, stretched human skin looking wolf things. Yeah, they have I mean, like sparing hair. But yeah. Yeah, there's uh, a little bit of hair. I mean, but you're right. Like they're not like fl- big fluffy wolves like in the werewolf movie that they were they were watching that Bridget was watching. No, they are the naked mole rats of werewolves. Yeah, and equally as terrifying. And the other thing about this scene, too, is that um, Ginger, she opens her her shirt, but we don't see her actual boobs. We just see the 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 next set of wolf wolf nipples on her her stomach, which is now getting all like, you know, she's getting like extra skin and all this kind of stuff. So she's got like a new texture in her. She has a new something going on with her face, some cool prosthetic makeup that's making her look a little bit more animal like and. I really appreciate that this movie went for scary monster girl instead of sexy monster girl. Like this is yeah. a point where yeah. mm-hmm. some movies would have taken a left turn here and this one takes a right and it's like I'm oh, no, grateful. Theory. Yeah, I'm grateful that when it's time to go full monster, the movie does not shy away from letting Ginger go full monster. Yeah. 
Let women be horrific hell beasts. Yeah, so, so. Uh, Bridget convinces Ginger to come home by uh, and, and leave Sam alone by cutting herself and swapping blood so that, you know, now she has werewolf disease as well. It's werewolfitis. Um, and this refers to the scene earlier where they were in the school and where there is the very, very awkward you know, we're barely related now. Let's uh, let's both be werewolves. We'll swap juices, which is the, the terminology that- That we're barely related now, I have to believe was like them going like, okay, this is- This got theory. too weird too fast. This is, yeah, like yeah. we need to backpedal on this. Well, and it's also the fact that they have, they have, you know, the scars on their hands from the, the oath, the, that they'll, right. they'll be, they'll be out, that they'll get out of there. Oh, but yeah. this scene- But yeah. The- this, that's the last we see of the mom in this whole movie is her grabbing the Tupperware with the fingers. Just can't leave that in the car. Got no, you can't, just, you can't you. leave those around. And she goes out into the rave party. And that's the last we see of her. Yeah, we see this progressively more difficult series of of uh, <laughs> character traversing party shots. Like Ginger owns the party and she comes in and she's like, wow, and then um, Bridget comes in and she's like, all you know, her her head is up in her shoulders and she's like, oh, okay, you know, and then the mom is just having the worst time but she's still and that's it that's you know that's one of the phrase on the uh the worn grunge jeans of this movie as far as we know for the entire rest of the movie while the entire climax is happening she's just still at this high school party with a tupperware of fingers and just got real into the vibe and is just dancing her heart out that's what i was hoping for yeah i i think she should that that is the ending we want for her (laughs) Yeah. I think Pamela stayed there and just got very stoned. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody uh, deserves to get stoned in this film, it is the adult woman. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so they, they throw Ginger in the back of... Well, so Sam helps by knocking Ginger out, who was already, like, headed out voluntarily with uh, Bridget. Um, and throw, they decide to throw her in the back of his truck. Um, <laughs> where she'll be safe and secure. Um, they they take her back to uh, their house where she is uh, already broken out of the back of the truck and has hidden inside the house. I'm sorry, truck and broken inside the house. And they they go in to find her. We do she, get a pretty gnarly transformation sequence here where she goes oh, yeah. full werewolf. Yeah, it's some yeah. David Cronenberg shit. Yup. Practical. Again, this is a movie that they do not sacrifice the body horror in the name of trying to sexualize ginger which i feel like a lot of movies would have done or even keep her looking pretty yeah no this is full-on body horror unapologetic (laughs) yeah bridget and uh sam go in with a flashlight uh they end up hiding in the closet and sam makes the brave decision that as the big tough boy in this situation he is going to take the drug out there and save them all by you know drugging by putting putting monk's hood in ginger of course this doesn't work out so well for sam uh who gets werewolf mauled and uh is later found you know bleeding on the floor i have to say good because i'm not sure i could handle 
the thematic implications of a movie that ends with a drug dealer man heroically drugging a teenage girl. That was the one thing I was never worried about. Like by the time it got to that point, the first time I'd seen this, I trusted the movie enough that I was pretty sure they weren't going to have that happen. Sam was was done. We're pretty, you know, and I think that throughout the movie, we're pretty sure that Sam isn't like, he's not, a, I mean, yeah, he's a drug dealer, but he's yeah. also sketchy. Spoilers, um, Sean from Boy Meets World. He's, no, he's no Dimitri in the first purge. It's like, he's a drug dealer and a gang leader. And I'm like, he has done nothing wrong in his entire life. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, he was, except, I mean, he was. He, you he apologize to my husband the, right the, now. He fell under the value system of being a drug dealer that was fighting racists. So, so what we're learning today is that it's racist drug dealers, werewolves <laughs> slightly below drug dealers. It depends on the werewolf and the drug dealer. That's yeah. fair. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but what we've got is that drug it's dealers have scale. access to practical skills and information. Yes, that's for sure. They are, they, they are valuable supporting players if you got to fight the supernatural. And great, all. great sidekick. Yes. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, that's it. what kills Sam. He thinks he's the protagonist. He yeah. is absolutely not. If he had yeah. been the sidekick, he may, he might have made it. Yep. No, he's just running the item store in town. He's the potions guy. Yeah, he's the potions guy. He's an NPC at best. He um, doesn't realize he's the potions guy. Conditional but... party member. Yeah. What are you buying? But uh, yeah, and then there's the scene where where Bridget encounters the the dying, hyperventilating uh, Sam. Well, first she has to fall down the stairs like she's on Canada's Funniest Home Videos. Yeah, the unfinished stairs the in the labyrinthine unfinished basement edition of this house. The property and, brothers are going to really fix this up in a couple of years. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and this place is not OSHA compliant by the way well it's a house it doesn't have to be you just have also, to it's in Canada. as long as as long as they're not like employing their kids as offspring they're fine well welcome, well, to, welcome to the wild land of uh, ontario architecture osha has no jurisdiction here. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if i've learned anything from property brothers it's that that house costs three quarters of a million dollars <laughs> and that they're gonna fix it up by like you know in like seven days and then it's going to be worth two million dollars because for some reason every house in canada is worth two million dollars there's anything that i've learned from marvel comics it's that canada is fucked up <laughs> yeah we don't want to underestimate canada Can we please get the jared kiso led alpha flight movie are we guessing that the the werewolf is some sort of result of like a weapon x experiment <laughs> it, seems I mean, plausible yeah basically what wolverine is <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is some Department H nonsense. I mean, I'm, it's as much explanation as we get for just where the werewolf originally came from. No, we don't I get mean, any explanation for that, yeah. which I yeah. really appreciate, actually. They yeah. don't try to create any kind of werewolf mythos. It's I, just a thing they have to deal with. I, yeah. I really enjoy that, that it just relies on us all knowing what werewolves are and the basics of werewolves. Yep, it, the, yep. It, we got a werewolf, I yep. guess. It doesn't need anything more than that. And I appreciate that it doesn't bog itself down trying to do more world building than it needs to do. Bridget, after Bridget, like, wah, 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 goes down the stairs, she and Ginger are sort of on either side of the dying Sam. And Bridget starts hesitantly, like, trying to, like, eat Sam's blood to sort of show Ginger that she's, like, part of her pack or whatever and then that's sort of the turning point for her she's like nope i can't 
She, I she cannot. vomits up Sam's blood and then... And it becomes clear that Ginger is if, hunting her at this point. Yeah. yeah. She just says, if you're going to be like that, I'll murder your boyfriend and uh, or drug yeah. dealer and hunt you. I know the movie didn't have much of a budget, but it really did make great use of it. Absolutely. Like for what it yeah. had, I really like uh, Ginger's like final full werewolf form. Yeah, it's really yeah. well done. It's and, really... It, it, it Again, it's, it stays body horror. She doesn't become a cool fluffy just wolf looking wolf like she she stays something that's clearly human derived and very much twisted and inhuman yeah this is yeah. not a werewolf that's going to be able to team up with a tom cruise mummy and uh, <laughs> superhero origin become, dracula and say she also doesn't become a chill uh collie as in some mutant related horror movies i've seen recently yeah this, <laughs> this werewolf will not fetch <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do really appreciate, you know, Ginger is, is trying to hunt her and Bridget is you know, getting away and Bridget's big line of like, I'm not dying here in this room with you uh, before Ginger tries to jump on her and gets uh, inadvertently stabbed to death is like such it's, a like. It's, yeah, it's Bridget's final point. rejection of, again, sort of like the promise they made and the thing that really defined their relationship at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, yeah. which and is. Especially the toxicity of their relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that they did it here, like in yeah. their best shared bedroom. Yeah. And that's the uh, um, out by sixteen or dead in the scene, but for together forever, united against life as we know it. Yes. Yeah, and then uh, last thing I wrote about this plot is that the end makes me very sleepy because the end goes on for long. a while. Yeah. Yeah, there's a very sad sort of, I don't know if I can call it a denouement because it's not really, nothing is resolving. It's just, you see the the juxtaposition of all of their memories and their videation and all that kind of stuff on the, the pictures on the wall that are shaped like upside down crosses or whatever. But, um, you know, after, after Bridget has resolved to not die and, you know, from what we can tell, she's holding the dying ginger as a wolf in between their beds and it's a very beautifully shot scene it's a beautiful image it's very slow you know we get the point i'm fine with that kind of filmmaking but yeah after all of the the you know i i feel like it does help the sort of melancholy of of this moment between them yeah i i wrote this because i mean i literally had to watch the end three times because i kept like drifting <laughs> off in the middle of it um, <laughs> but like it's you know it's like clearly Clearly to us watching the movie, like Ginger is dying and they seem to be like, does she try and cure Ginger with this thing or does she save it for herself? And like, I don't know, there's there's a lot of back and forth. And like you said, contrasting of their relationship well, I feel like, right now. I feel like you got two arguments against giving the cure to Ginger at this point. One we might be on like Michelle Rodriguez's Resident Evil rules where she's just like too werewolfed out to be unwerewolfed. And two, whether you cure her of the werewolf, you can't really cure her of the fatal stab wound. Right. You know, put on your own werewolf cure first before assisting others. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> and then yeah. also should... all the shit that they did. I, I guess all that's left to, to do is talk about the uh, politics here. Jay, uh, was there anything in particular that you wanted to be sure and hit on this? I mean, I think, I think that I, I feel like I, I hit most of the things that I would want to have covered when we were going through the summary um, about the, you know, the gender politics, sexuality, who gets narratively punished, that, that, that being sexual and sexualization are really 
really distinct experiences in this, that the central relationship is really between Bridget and Ginger um, and sort of the, the way that it handle, handles that. I mean, I, I think for me, the big, the big thing that defines this movie isn't so much its politics as it is how exactly it nails a very specific kind of suburban alienation. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like, I mean, we talked about the fact that the only person of color in this movie dies. Obviously, yeah. the way this deals with racial justice is, is not a good thing. The way it deals with race generally is not a good thing. I, I think it only really deals with class as a critique of suburban life in general. Um, there's not I'm a sorry, lot of it, discussion it's, of class. It's, it's too homogenous to really even address or acknowledge class. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody seems to be equally middle class in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think the uh, also it doesn't really doesn't deal much with directly with LGBT issues at all. I mean, there's obviously some extrapolation yeah. you can do, but but um, don't. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's it's too toxic for that kind of thing. It's not even yeah. not even with the finding the ship. You can't. You can't. No, no. Don't don't ship from this. The movie. only ships yeah. you can find in this movie are bad and don't do it i ship sam's van and a better future i don't know (laughs) i I ship the mom and the nurse i ship the mom (laughs) and sam's van like the mom oh yeah i like that sam's van i ship the mom mom and sam's drugs (laughs) the mom sam's drugs and then years later allison from orphan black the mom becomes the new drug dealer i like this yeah and this is how we get canadian weeds there you go. <laughs> feminist. Is this movie feminist? I'm going to go with yes. For I will also go with yes. Very specific yeah. and largely, in, in a very specific and largely satirical way. I think the ways in which it's intensely problematic on gender lines are ones that for the most part it's very aware of. Yes. And mm-hmm. playing deliberately um, and not particularly pushing apologetics about like Ginger's whole girl who's not Ginger and Bridget's whole girl who's not the girls who aren't like the other girls thing is clearly awful. And there's there's no there's no particular romanticization of that. Yeah, there the central relationship is very, very much and always between Bridget and Ginger. Yeah. The rest of the characters in the movie are really kind of window dressing to that arc. Ginger does definitely, and it, you've you've written in the notes that um, Ginger does exemplify a lot of the the toxic elements that she she has internalized about her uh, role, you know, about her gender role, about her puberty, about her sexuality, the fact that her sexuality is violence, and that's not. I, and I feel like that is a comp, a, a commentary on sexuality in teens and what they internalize about sexuality especially when they're growing up learning that sex will kill you sex will kill you but not if you kill sex first or whatever you know like that's- oh i like that phrasing that that sums <laughs> up a lot about this movie yeah so that's sort of where ginger is and then ginger also being this powerful figure in bridget's life i feel like a lot of this movie is surrounds what bridget you know as you said that that bridget is the protagonist and she's reacting to a lot of this and she has to navigate her way through it and that is um all of ginger's toxicity is rejected in that line of i'm not dying here with you i'm not dying um which i think is pretty powerful um also like i i said before every adult man in this movie except for the janitor who was done real dirty it, every adult man is 
cartoonishly useless every adult woman is embarrassingly wholesomely powerful embarrassing to the teens who are still trying to figure out their identity certainly but they're just so powerful <laughs> um there's a sense that there's there are realities that the women in this movie and especially the adult women recognize and are willing to recognize yeah that the men yeah. just don't yeah because i mean we yeah. the first time we see, we really see or interact with an adult man in the movie it's the the guidance counselor who's also their teacher in the class where they're doing the life is life in bailey downs video with all the fake suicides and the first time we see him he he's he's at a loss for words like he's going yeah. on about how he just he and he's he's just spluttering in horror and rage well, I do because get... he can't name or really interact with what what's going on. With I was partially with the lost words. Once he started getting like angry at them, I'm like, "Up, oh, you lost him." I'm thinking like, "Man, if I'm like a video high school video professor, and I have two students that turn into that project, I'm like, shit." I have a serious mental health crisis on my hands. Yeah. Oh, see, no, I would, I would, I would look at that and I'd be like, "Okay, someone thinks they're real artsy." Yeah, I have, well, I have obnoxiously budding auteur filmmakers and I should probably have a conversation with them about whether this is an aesthetic thing or serious and give them some pamphlets. But like, yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't take it as a personal affront. Like this is, I, I'm not going to say this is necessarily the kind of film I would have made if I were making films in high school, but it's not that far off. Well, I want to know what was the assignment? It was, right? it, was, it was just, it was life in Bailey Downs. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah I, I do really appreciate the, I think interestingly feminist thing about this that a lot of movies that think they're a lot of horror movies that think they're aware of tropes and are doing something about them but are only just aware of the tropes mm-hmm. um it it does you know interesting things it commits to you know things like ginger being you know horrible and monstrous in these you know you know climactic pieces it's not sexy werewolf it's not shot from an angle where you know where seeing things that she isn't showing everybody it's it's like it's empowering to her even as she is the villain of the story um rather than being like you know shooting through the lens of of things we've talked about i mean we talk about cabin in the woods a lot because like (laughs) it talks about all the tropes while simultaneously doing them like it doesn't it's like we're aware of this stuff and here it is again um as compared to this movie that is like clearly saying like we're aware of this stuff here's a different version like here's a better version of that Um, it doesn't fall into the it doesn't buy into the fallacy that feminism can be reduced to violence done by female person either yeah no the quote-unquote strong female character well or even just yeah it's feminist because a lady does killings yeah yeah it's very much not that no yeah it's it's this movie I, I mean, I will say pretty well unqualified is is never male gazing. Like it's yeah. very well thought out about that. I mean, everybody is, you know, pretty well head to toe covered throughout, you know, the movie unless they specifically don't want to be. Even when the I feel like the movie is most focused on Ginger at her most sexualized, it never feels too like exploitive or male gazy like it's usually you know her walking down hallways in incredible outfits it feels more like a little cat what like you know model runway like just showing off like 
herself and her confidence and the way she carries herself. She's, she's framed in those scenes, yeah, as powerful. Like yeah. she's it, it. She's doing the superhero walk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She really is, and with the rogue hair. Yeah. Got the 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 rogue bangs. Man, X Men Evolution just taking her like Ginger Snaps, like some puffies, and like. I, I don't crab, think I don't like... think they pulled anything from Ginger Snaps, but they definitely directly rotoscoped the craft and Buffy. Oh yeah, for sure. But like, man, X Men Evolution, like. That's where it was at with like in the early 2000s. <laughs> like they, they were bringing in all the, the good references. All right. So all that said, obviously, I think this is something we all recommend people check out, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I would definitely give those those trigger warnings, especially regarding the dog death. Um, so much dog death. Holy yeah. shit. Oh. <laughs> I'll say also something that wasn't an issue for me, but my wife watched it with me for the first time last night. And she mentioned that as someone who grew up with a dangerous sibling, it hit a lot harder in some places than it was clearly necessarily intended to. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of gaslighting and a lot of manipulation that goes on with Ginger and her sister which is not in the end girl power like we said yeah. which yeah so it's you know it at least makes that distinction no uh that said what else if if people like this movie what would we recommend they check out i mean heather's absolutely orphan black it's got a ton of creative overlap and i think it's got it comes in with a lot of the same genre sensibilities and it's smart in a lot of the same ways is it cheating to say jennifer's body <laughs> or the craft so, yeah i mean do we I, mean, really I wouldn't recommend I, people watch the craft i don't think we even recommend people watch the craft yeah no i'm not so sure about that craft. but i definitely recommend people watch jennifer's body yes um absolutely um i i have a few weird recommendations that are like really far afield and i i would recommend that if anybody watches this movie and really wants to think about um gender roles and teen development and do like a fun little compare contrast watching teen wolf and this movie is an incredible contrast <laughs> um and i'm of course talking about the michael j fox teen wolf whose dad is very similar i think in terms of the the dynamic between um bridget and ginger and their mom um my i can't even remember the name of the character teen wolf's dad who's also a werewolf is pretty like a, like incredibly wholesome and fun in that movie and the way that the mom i feel like there may have been some sort of an influence there but um yeah fun fun movie night teen wolf and ginger snaps american werewolf in paris if you like werewolves and if you like stories about coming of age identity gender and um development this is a this one's very far afield, but there's a lot of subjects in this movie that are also dealt with in weird ways by the series Revolutionary Girl Utna, um, which has a lot to do with what it is to be a girl, and you know, breaking away from that. Um, I gotta say, Emily, that's not where I saw that one going. But yeah, yeah. that was a, I really did. I didn't know where you were going, but revolutionary girl it was not where i saw that sentence ending yeah um but if you if you're interested in seeing interesting takes on um 
puberty and, and uh, gender identity and relationships, um, which is, you know, less horrifying, but also very, very relatable in a sort of allegorical way. Um, definitely not as, as uh, straightforward as this movie is about um, menstruation and stuff. Check it out. Um, and I'll, can I can I briefly obnoxiously self-promote and say it's not in print anywhere, but you can find a video of it online that, that, that I have a short story called Three Ways of Looking at Blood that is a different a teen girl werewolf story, but with a lot of the same antecedents basically inspired by the realization <coughs> and conversation with a friend. That one of the things they taught us when they took us into a separate room was how to get blood out of fabric in middle school. Interesting. Ooh. Yeah, the, it was the what to do if you bleed through your jeans thing, but... That's got some interesting connotations. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. In, in, yeah. In Ginger Snaps, they do have a scene where there's some soaked through panties, and that is, you know, definitely considering the context is a generally bold move in terms of film, um, especially of of because they wouldn't even do that in the um, in the commercials or in the uh, the I, puberty I, videos. Do you like how the result of that ginger immediately goes full paranoid and thinks Bridget revealed the secret that she's had her period and not maybe her mother saw the very bloody like underwear that she then put in the laundry. Yeah. Uh, but Jay, what's that story called again? It's called Three Ways of Looking at Blood. Three Ways of Looking at Blood. And that's online? It's online. I will find the video, but I can, I can also send you a text version. All right. Yeah, and at the risk of uh, recommending something we've already talked about before, um, this movie very much uh, makes me think about The Company of Wolves. Um, yes. Yeah, the Neil Jordan uh, film and the book on which it's based, Bloody Chamber um, by Angela Carter, both of which do very interesting things with gender and werewolves and um, are definitely worth watching um, in a way that maybe maybe not everything Neil Jordan has directed is. So that- uh, I would also like to recommend the brief clip of 30 Rock of Werewolf Bar Mitzvah. Yeah, yeah. I, that is one of two pieces of 30 Rock I have ever seen and it's it's definitely up there. Spooky and scary. Um, becoming men, men becoming wolves. Now uh, to wrap up, Jay, can you let everybody know where they can find you online? Gosh, I am kind of all over the place. If you like the dulcet tones of my voice, you can hear that weekly on Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, which is exactly what it says on the Tin, a weekly podcast about the ins, outs, retcons, clones, and time travel of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, which you can find at Explain the X-Men on pretty much all non-Facebook social media. Also on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all those guys. Let's see. I am on Twitter as NotLasers and on Tumblr as postcards from space. And those are really the only two platforms I particularly use. I've got a website, but it's pretty much just my CV. So I don't particularly recommend going there for fun. Um, you can also, if you, if you Google my name, you can also find a fairly wide range of articles, essays, journalism, fiction, and comics that I have written or edited. Fantastic. And yeah, I highly recommend Explain the X-Men. It is one of a handful of podcasts that I still regularly listen to. We are an effervescent delight. Absolutely. So if I haven't told you, Jay, uh, your Cyclops uh, comic was absolutely wonderful and I loved it. Thank you. It was a lot of fun to write. 
And uh, Emily, where can people find you online? I am on Twitter at Mega Moth. I am on Instagram at Mega underscore Moth. I am at, on Tumblr uh, at Mega Moth. And I am on the internet. Um, and my very not often uh, updated website is megamoth.net. And um, I am on Patreon. So um, if you want to see the art I do, it's mostly on those places. Also, there may be some, uh, some princeless very very close up non-context non-spoilery princeless images on my patreon so sign up today all right and ben where can people find you online uh you can find me at on twitter at at ben the con and you can find my comics uh you can find at benconcomics.com links to uh digital and print where you can find my works including uh heavenly blues shaman uh griffin galaxy's most wanted and uh link to pre-order renegade rule uh my upcoming esports queer comedy from dark horse comics coming out may 26th all right go order that now um as for me you can find me on twitter and instagram at jrome58 it's j-r-o-m-e-5-8 and at jeremywhitley.com uh, we do have pre-orders open right now for the second book of School for Extraterrestrial Girls, uh, as well as the book nine of, of Raven is out. And uh, as Emily said, book 10 of Princess should be coming soon. And Marvel Action Chillers is all out and should be collected very soon for you guys to, to check out all in one bunch, or you can go buy them individually now. Uh, Progressively Horrified can be found on Patreon at patreon.com slash progressively horrified. Twitter at prog horror pod is in progressive horror podcast on the website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm where you can please subscribe, rate, and review it wherever you get your finer podcasts. I do want to thank Jay very much for joining us today. It's been a ball. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Thank you so much. It was, this has been so much fun. It was, yeah, I had a really great time. And All right. And uh, thank you to both Emily and Ben, as always, for being here with me tonight. And thank you again to all of you for listening. Now make sure to tune in next week. I have no idea where this is going to fall in the recording order because some things are moving around even as we speak, but I'm sure we'll be talking about something great next week. So have a great week and we'll see you again here next week. Bye. Progressively Horrified is created and produced by Jeremy Whitley. This episode featured Jeremy Whitley, Ben Kahn, Emily Martin, and Jay Edidin. All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and not intended to represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent any of the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Cole 06 and is provided royalty-free from Pixabay. Contact us on Twitter at ProgHorrorPod or by email at ProgressivelyHorrified at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs>